Welcome everyone to the She Can Fix It podcast. My name is Dr. Alana Munger. On this episode, we have a great interview with the one and only Dr. Christy Weber. Dr. Weber is the Chief of Orthopedic Oncology at Penn Medicine. She was also the first ever female president of the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons. I wanted to speak to Dr. Weber to discuss her tenure as president of the AOS and learn about her goals and achievements during that time. I had a fantastic time speaking with Dr. Weber, and I hope you enjoy this episode of the She Can Fix It podcast with Dr. Christy Weber. Dr. Christy Weber, thank you so much for joining us on the She Can Fix It podcast. I am so excited to speak with you, and I really appreciate you taking the time to speak with us today. Absolutely thrilled. Thank you for inviting me, Alana. Awesome. So, Dr. Weber, what I would first love to hear about is your background. This is hometown, college, medical school, residency, fellowship, and beyond. I'm a Midwestern kid. I grew up in St. Louis, Missouri. Mm -hmm. Um, My parents are still there. Um, I have a brother who is now in Colorado and has a family of his own, a couple little nieces. I stayed there for high school. I went two hours away to the State University for college at the University of Missouri. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, you know, I, I'd like to think I bring the best of the Midwest to my daily work and my daily job. It's a, a good work ethic. And I was going to be a veterinarian. I was in the College of Agriculture and Animal Science and reading James Harriet stories and working in wildlife rescue centers and veterinary clinics. So it was a late switch to medical school at the, my senior year really of uh, college. Um, I shifted, took a lot heavier college senior schedule than I was planning on and went to medical school. So I uh, left medical, I left college to go to medical school, chose Johns Hopkins. Um, I hadn't even heard of Johns Hopkins and I'd never been out to that part of the country. and I wasn't sure actually that a Midwestern kid from a state school would be able to make it in the fancy East Coast places. Um, I was wrong, but I didn't know that at the time. So a little bit of uh, insecurity about that. Um, I think I probably had some idea that I would be okay when I went out there for my interview and I saw somebody with a pocket protector, which you probably don't even know what that is, but it's pretty nerdy where people used to put this little pocket thing to protect their shirt from getting ink stains. Um, it was something that a lot of the nerdy kids uh, used to use. So I figured I would, I would be okay. I wasn't set. I wasn't that much of a nerd, uh, but I had a great time in medical school. I, I got exposed to a whole new culture really on the East coast. Um, uh, made a decision to go into orthopedics. Uh, I moved to Iowa. I did my residency training for five years at the University of Iowa. I, I did my orthopedic oncology training uh, for two years at the Mayo Clinic. I did a year in the laboratory and a year in the clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. And um, that's, that's really my, my background. I've, I've worked at three places, MD Anderson Cancer Center in Houston, Texas. I um, worked at Johns Hopkins for another 10 years. Uh, and then I've been at Penn for about eight years now. Perfect. Um, well, Dr. Weber, what I would also love to hear about is the story of how you knew you wanted to become an orthopedic surgeon. Like, what was it that inspired you to pursue that path? You know, I was active in sports as many people are growing up. So there, there was that. There was that aspect of health and mobility that I was interested in. I was one of those medical students, however, that was interested in everything. I really enjoyed all of my rotations and I did opt for more of a surgical field early on. I think that is my personality. I'd like to get things done and and make a difference uh, in a visible way. That's pretty quick. Um, So I opted for orthopedics and I think initially I wanted to be a sports doc and I thought I would be the orthopedic surgeon, doctor for the Olympics. I subsequently opted not to, to become a sports doc, but, uh, um, but I decided pretty early in medical school and there was a fair amount of pushback. That was, I was in school from 87 to 91 and there were only men in my class that were going into orthopedics and 
I was a very good student there, so I didn't have any doubt about my qualifications, but it was still a little bit of an anomaly. And I definitely got the, I can't believe that this is something you want to do. Women don't do this or women can't do this. And I think that, you know, that just made me want to do it even more uh, when they said that I couldn't. Very cool. Um, And then you further subspecialized and you became an expert in orthopedic oncology. So how did you get onto that path? I didn't make that final decision until I was in my residency at the University of Iowa, but I did have uh, some experience in medical school at Hopkins in pathology. And one of my favorite pathology instructors was Ed McCarthy. And he actually had started his career as an orthopedic surgeon for a couple of years, and then he shifted to pathology. And so he brought that understanding of orthopedics and orthopedic oncology uh, to the pathology lab. So he was very interested in x-rays. Uh, and combining that knowledge with an understanding of the histology under the microscope, uh, very interested in bone and soft tissue tumors. And I did some extra rotations just with him. Uh, But I really made a final decision after going through all my rotations in residency. Again, I liked pretty much every rotation. I thought about pediatric orthopedics. I thought about hand surgery. And I settled on orthopedic oncology, primarily because of the patients. I just really connected with the patients. Um, and I had a mentor there, Jody Buckwalter at Iowa, did the tumor surgery who I, um, I very much admired and respected. What I would love to hear Dr. Uh, Weber is the fact that one of the major reasons why I wanted to speak with you is the fact that you were the first, the first female president of the AOS and I kind of want to delve into some of the goals that you spoke about in your inaugural address and kind of how that played out over your uh, year as president. And so one of the first things you brought up in your address was you wanted the academy to remain relevant. You stated that the academy board knows that it risks losing relevance among orthopedic surgeons if it fails to change and be proactive. The larger healthcare ecosystem is rapidly changing with empowered consumers, bundled payment plans, and a continued focus on quality and value-based care. The Academy needs to keep pace and lead the way in musculoskeletal health. And so I was hoping you can kind of expand on what you meant by this and what the Academy did during your tenure to kind of ensure that this happened. Yeah, thanks. Thank you very much for that. I... You know, the organizations in general, to be effective, need to operate on a strategic pathway or a strategic plan. And the academy's always had some semblance of a strategic plan, but I don't think it was as well executed as it needed to be. And it had been a while before it had been updated. And so when I was the first vice president, of the academy. And again, the leadership opportunity in the academy at that level is about a four-year run from second vice president to first vice president to president. And now I'm the past president. And so I led the team that developed a new strategic plan for the academy that would take place from 2019 to 2023. And we engaged a consultant team to help us with that because that's not something that orthopedic surgeons do every day. And we really wanted to get it right. And we also had a new CEO Uh, and a new COO of the organization that came in at the same time as I came into the leadership line, who were very focused on strategy. And this was something that they were very familiar with. They came from the American College of Cardiology, Tom Arend and Dino Demolis. And so with, you know, that's a partnership between member leaders and the CEO and his team. So this was just a natural, it was an opportunity to really think about what are the external stressors for the organization? What are the opportunities Um, and what are the focus points we really had to say, what are the key things we want to do over the next five years? And so we, you know, aligned around a vision and the vision is to be the trusted leaders, uh, in advancing musculoskeletal health. And that's a big vision. I mean, that is, you know, that's, that's big. It means that orthopedic surgeons are really going to lead that team, not just of surgery, but of musculoskeletal health. So as part of that, the three goals that we identified uh, they were not my goals, they were the board's goals. And so when you talk about, you know, maintaining relevance and specifically a focus on quality and value, um, I personally felt very strongly about quality and value. I had served as the chair of the Council on Research and Quality 
when we really rolled out clinical practice guidelines and appropriate use criteria uh, in, at the AAOS over the um, prior years, back in 2008 to 2012 um, and beyond. So that was a real interest of mine. And I felt like our organization had been resistant to really adopting an evidence-based focus and really pushing that. I mean, individual practices might be doing that, but really to develop those national guidelines about what works and what doesn't in all aspects of orthopedic care. Um, and so I, I, you know, I, I don't want our field to be lagging behind. We should be leading this. We should be identifying what works and what doesn't so we can set the conversation in Washington, DC and with payers and, and employers and such. And so that's goal number two is, is to really talk about the value-based environment. And uh, when you have a strategic plan that's really gonna be functional, one part of it is to set the goals. And we can talk about, I think you're gonna talk about the other goals, but when you set the goals, you set metrics and objectives so that it's very clear what you're going to need to do to achieve the goal that you set. And then you need to have accountability on the execution. And the Academy has 230 staff members between Rosemont, Illinois and Washington, D.C. And so Dino Damalis as the COO had aligned every single staff person to every piece of the accountability part of these goals so that anybody in the organization is working at any given time to execute on the specific metrics, objectives, et cetera. So rather than just having a strategic plan that we say, oh yeah, it's somewhere on a shelf, nobody can remember what it actually says. This is every time we have a board meeting, we, the board is updated on exactly where we are with every single initiative focused on achieving these goals. So it's a lot, it's a lot more, um, it's a lot more focused and there's a lot more accountability than there ever has been. And, and that's the way we're going to make progress. So we have, and we've made progress in the quality and value um, aspects specifically with the development of registries. So the Academy has a vision for a family of registries, starting with hip and knee registry that had been sort of ongoing for many years, but not really taking off. Um, but by infusing a fair amount of money and infrastructure uh, and staffing into this, we're now at a very high level. We're capturing, you know, a third to a half of total joints done in this country right now into the Academy's registry. We have a shoulder and elbow registry now. We uh, started a fracture registry. Um, we have a musculoskeletal tumor registry, which is fantastic. Certainly I'm interested in that. Um, and we've combined with the neurosurgeons to, to have a spine registry. And this big data approach is gonna allow us to better understand the trends in care, outcomes, having individual surgeons and practices understand how they are doing um, so that they can elevate their game uh, for uh, quality improvement. So I think it's one of the most important things we've done in the quality and value space since the organization has started. Um, and I think it really, it sort of all dovetails with this plan. I think that's ex exciting that all of these registries are, you know, up and coming. And certainly as over the next few years, it probably will get more popular and maybe you'll get to two thirds and even more with the number of patients you're inputting in, but that's exciting. One of the other goals you spoke about was a desire to deliver a personalized and seamless member experience and you mentioned that the younger members know virtually no other kind of experience and have prioritized this concept of information at your fingertips, often choosing other vendors for their educational needs. Um, we sound rather high maintenance, but uh, I think it's true. Um, can you kind of expand on the inspiration for this goal and what the Academy was able to accomplish during your tenure? Well, I think the inspiration for the goal is that we're way behind. And so when we came up with the strategic plan in 2018, looking at the, the various competitors in the space, obviously the academy, one of the main aspects of the historical academy is education. So providing that education. Now that education is provided by a lot of different people, um, different, different private groups, specialty societies. And so we wanted to be able to redefine what the academy's role is in the education space. So that, that has its own strategic effort. But just the way that we supply information, you know, a cumbersome old website, or are we going to be able to get things out in electronic devices and smartphones and, and when people need it, you know, what they need. I used to get so many, and I still do actually get so many emails from the Academy on things that I have absolutely no interest about. So really it comes down to who the members are of the organization. Once we know who the members are and we can identify what their preferences are in terms of education, 
in terms of understanding things maybe related to leadership or quality or diversity, then we can start to personalize the member experience in that I now get emails that say, you know, dear Christy or dear Dr. Weber, you know, we've got a new video about reconstruction of the proximal tibia after an osteosarcoma. Wouldn't you like to see that? Well, sure. I'd like to see that, right? That's what I do. I'd love to see what the new technique is. I don't want to hear something about a specialty that I'm not interested in, but I used to get everything. And so I just used to shut down the, all the emails and I, and I probably missed things. So now by knowing that I am Christy Weber, I am an orthopedic oncologist. I am this long in practice. These are the things that I have particular interest in. Now, when things come up, it, they're personalized emails and that's still, we have a long way to go, but that personalized information about what's there that can help me with my practice, with my pathway on learning. Um, and that's, and that's where we want to capture residents as well. So the whole resident curriculum has come out of this particular goal uh, as one of our three strategic plan goals. And we've partnered with the AOA to develop this resident curriculum that's going to be overarching and it's going to be a national curriculum uh, that any residency program can adopt. It'll be free for the um, residents themselves. And it's going to provide not just the, the curriculum, but also, you know, sort of a sense of where you are compared to other residents at any given time. Um, so much material is going to be available. It's just going to be so much better than any other product out there. And it's going to utilize everything the 8th Academy has and all the educators that the Academy uses as the orthopedic surgeons out there. It's, it's going to roll out here in the next, you know, next number of months. And I think it's going to be really exciting, but we've got a long way to go in terms of personalized and seamless. We've, we've upgraded the technology uh, over the past year. So that's going to help. Um, but it's a, it's an old cumbersome organization in many ways. Was that something that you were worried about when you first kind of went on this leadership path of, you know, second vice president, vice president, president, and the fact that literally it was this behemoth of a thing that everything was in place for such a long period of time. And it's, I think for me, that'd be so daunting to be like, how can I change this steamship of a thing? You have hit on it the exact point. Um, and if, if we're going to maintain relevance as this organization, frankly, if we're going to maintain, maintain re relevance as a field, we've got to be willing to change. And orthopedics is so tradition-based. It's so traditional. The organization, the academy is traditional. Other specialty societies are traditional. We run things the way that we used to do things. And it isn't going to work for younger people who are coming into the field or attracting younger people to get in the field. I, I used to say we're conservative, but I think conservative isn't the right word. Conservative has political connotations. Uh, and while I do think that the majority of our members are conservative in the political sense, that's not really what I'm talking about. I'm talking about that whole traditional, you know, white guy brings his wife to the meetings and there's a golf day and there's a, you know, the wives will go off on a reading tour or something. I mean, that's, that's orthopedics uh, from a long time ago. And we're just starting to break out of there. We're not quite there yet. You know, there's a lot of new people in the field. People identify differently. It's, we've got to be able to keep up with the times um, or we're just going to be this sort of old majority culture field and people aren't going to want to join us and we want the best people to join us. So we've got to be able to change, but there is a significant resistance to change on an organizational level and maybe even on a, just a national field level. Do you think creating objective goals is something that helped? I think that's doc something that Dr. Ann Van Hees kind of speaks about in terms of why she was able to be so successful as a program director is the fact that she was literally outlined objective measures and objective goals in order to kind of help move things along. Do you think that that's something that helped you? Right. I mean, back to the strategic plan, goal three relates to culture and governance. And so, you know, again, that's not Christy Weber's goal three, that that's a board decision. And that goes back to the Academy's board of directors. And, and another thing I'll comment on before I get back to your question is this whole tradition. If you, if, if you think about it, and many people who are, are practicing orthopedic surgeons will know this, but the Academy president, it used to be whatever he wanted to do for the year. And so it would be this president's thing, their pet project, or this is my thing, or this is your thing. And, and 
you know, you'd be really excited about it. But if everybody else wasn't excited about it, that wasn't something that was going to really benefit the organization long term, then it sort of died out after you left. And then there's a lot of energy put into something that doesn't really have staying power. So the whole concept in my mind is moving the organization and any organization really from personality-based leadership to process-based leadership. So the organization should be able to move forward regardless of who the president is. And of course you put your mark on it. I mean, I put my mark on, on the board when I was there for sure. I mean, you know, being a woman, obviously just being one part of that, but, but as far as the, how we do things, it shouldn't be different under my presidency versus Joe Bosco's presidency versus Danny Guy's presidency coming up. It should be, we have a process for doing this. This is the fair, transparent way we do this. And it's not personality based. So when we come up with a strategic plan, that was the board that developed that. There was a small group that sort of did some of the groundwork and then the board weighed in and the board ultimately approved it and had buy-in. And then each year we take several different initiatives and say, we're going to work on this for the year. And the board decides that. I don't say, you know what? I really care about diversity. I want to focus all our efforts on diversity when I'm president. No, if it was up to me, I would have focused on different things that I personally care about a lot. And I would have Put other things on the side that I didn't care about, but it's not about me. It's about the organization. It's about a board coming together to say, these are the things that we're going to focus on this year. And we're going to employ those 230 staff and all of our committees and, and member leaders to be able to get these things done over the course of the next year. So, um, so anyway, I think having a goal is always critical because then you can, you can march toward that goal with verifiable uh, results. Um, I think something that you certainly made your mark with is with the fact that was personally my favorite part of the speech, um, changing culture in orthopedic surgery. And you stated that we risk becoming irrelevant as an organization and as a specialty if we do not change our culture. Our differences should stimulate curiosity, not judgment. And we need to celebrate our common interest and commitment to improving the musculoskeletal health of our patients Let's create a more welcoming culture and remove subjective barriers to inclusion, advancement, and leadership in our practices, institutions, and the academy. Were you at all nervous when you spoke those words in your inaugural address? <laughs> yeah, no one's asked me that before. I, I was super pumped. Um, I was really, I mean, yes, of course I was nervous. I mean, it's a big crowd. You know, you don't know if the teleprompter is going to work. You don't know if you're going to forget what you're going to say and look like a complete idiot, trip over your shoes, all those things. But, um, but this was an opportunity, right? And I felt, I really did feel like I was up there for more than just myself. You know, this, this incoming presidential speech um, in 2019 in, in Vegas was, I think it was for all women that have been working hard in orthopedics for so many years. There are many women that have come before me and I think the timing just wasn't right for them. So I don't know why I uh, specifically ended up in the timing space that I, I did, but I was going to take advantage of that. Um, and so I was excited to be there. I, I looked out and saw all the women that were out there and uh, my family was out there and uh, it was an exciting time. And I wanted to, I wanted to crush it. Right. I had practiced it. I wrote the speech all myself. Those are all my words. I wrote it um, over Thanksgiving when I was in a cabin in the woods by myself for a few days, um, you know, just making sure I, I put the words on page that I wanted. And I will tell you that, you know, the words that I wrote, I, I can be a lot more strong than the words that I wrote there um, about how I feel about culture and how I feel about inclusion. But you know, you have to think of your audience, not just the audience that's sitting in the auditorium, but the, the collective audience that might see this. And I've always found that regardless of my personal views on some things, if you speak from or lead from anger, I, I personally don't find that you get heard. And maybe that's not everywhere, but I think it's that way in this field. And so to get up there and rant and go on and on about this or that injustice or whatever, I, I don't find that that's helpful. Um, and I don't find that that actually moves us forward. So we can channel that energy uh, that we have as women or as uh, people of color or, or anybody else that's not part of the majority culture. And we can use that to really work hard um, in constructive ways to move the field forward. And that's what, what I'm interested in. So I, you know, I tried to add some humor. I tried to be forceful in my comments, but I also had, had some fun up there. And um, 
you know, I do think we're all in this together. I do think the vast majority of people want the organization to stay relevant and to be inclusive. Um, a lot of men out there that have daughters um, that are either going into medicine or orthopedics or not just, you know, I think some of the comments resonated with them about, you know, giving their daughters a chance to do anything they wanted and, and being a little bit appalled if there would be any obstacles put in front of their daughter. Um, so it was an exciting um, opportunity for me and I, and I felt honored to be there. It was something that was very powerful. And so thank you for, you know, writing it and saying it. And what were some of the initiatives, you know, that the Academy itself took to kind of help make progress on this? Yeah, again, culture changes is slow and it has to be consistent. So we're going to go back to that comment about process-based versus personality-based, right? You got the woman president of the Academy, who knows when there'll be another one, hopefully not too much longer, um, or someone of color. Um, so if you're just going to rely on the person that's diverse to make the culture change, it's not going to happen. So we have to put in plans and processes that will allow that initiative to move forward, no matter who's in charge, no matter who's on the board. And so to that end, with goal three of the strategic plan related to, um, you know, strategy, diversity, culture, um, Ann Van Heest was the chair of the diversity advisory board at that time. And so her team was charged with coming up with a specific strategy related to the specific goal of becoming more diverse in the academy's board and, and member leadership. So we weren't actually setting a goal to become more diverse as a field because the academy doesn't control that. We don't control the medical student selection into orthopedics, but we do control what our organization looks like. And so who are the leaders? Who's on the board? Who's making the decisions? We can control that. And so, you know, there are specific metrics around making sure the outreach is there to women, to underrepresented minorities, um, and making sure people understand how to move into the organization and become leaders um, over time. Um, we don't have quotas per se. We, did, we chose not to put quotas in there about how many of a certain type of person there needs to be. Um, but we do have checkpoints that we're checking essentially multiple times a year to see how we're doing when we select new people to run committees or councils or be on the board. Uh, next year's board looks to be the most diverse that it's been in the history of the Academy. So, you know, you know, continuing to value excellence, you know, obviously we want to prioritize quality, but there are a lot of people out in the Academy that have the qualities uh, and the leadership skills to lead uh, and the interest. So we just need to keep our eyes open and make sure we're not, we're not missing people and making sure everybody has an opportunity and knows how to apply to get those roles. Uh, awesome. Do you think that the orthopedic surgeons of the world, both men and women included, um, listened to your speech and kind of took it to heart? Hard to know, uh, you know, at least the people that talked to me about it heard it. Um, but I do know that it was fun over the course of the year to hear from, and I would have to say that it resonated with women and as I expected it would, um, but also again, like I said, men who have, you know, women in their life, uh, in their families, um, I think it resonated with them, but I, I got a kick out of hearing from women in Australia or women in Brazil uh, or women in India. And I did some traveling to some of those countries as well, but also just as I traveled around to various state societies to speak to, get to talk to women who are a new, new in private practice, or, you know, maybe medical students would come and, and, and I would get to meet them and, and just so much excitement around um, the possibility of seeing, seeing someone in this particular role, um, I think makes it easier for you to believe that it's, it's possible to, to, to not only be in that role, but be beyond. Um, you can't be what you can't see is what they say. What do you think needs to be done, like actively done over the next few years slash decade in order for this change in culture to actually occur? Because I think for me, one of the like soapbox things that I always get on is that it's very easy to say things, right? It's so easy to go on Twitter and post about how things need to change. And it's so much harder to actually figure out a way to make that change happen. So what do you think needs to happen over the next decade? Yeah, no, it's good. It's great. I mean, that's the good question, right? And I, I will comment on your comment about, um, I, I call it, uh, you know, comments from the couch. I mean, I, you know, social media, I'm not 
a big presence on social media, but I'm not super interested in what people have to say on their Twitter accounts or on their Facebook accounts, because I want to know who's in there working, right? So if you want to complain about why it's not better, or it's not this, or it's not that, I want you to apply to be on a committee to get, you know, get in a position so that you actually can help make the change that need that's needed. Um, complaining about the lack of change is, is only so helpful, not terribly helpful sometimes. So I encourage, you know, people to get involved and anybody who wants to see change needs to roll up their sleeves. And, you know, I'm 55 years old. I've been in this field for a long time, right? It, the change doesn't happen immediately. You got to dig in. You got to, you know, if you're, if you want to be a leader that helps the change, dig in, get some credibility, work hard, you know, do some writing, do some studies, speak up. Um, so that's from a leader perspective, but we have to get more diverse voices in the leadership again. And it's not just about, I know, you know, we're talking about women primarily today, but when you think about, when you think about orthopedics and that whole tradition piece, that majority culture, it's white, male, straight, um, conservative, um, able, with kids, married, uh, Christian, uh, rich. That's the culture we have. And if you're not one of those things, if you're somebody who's not able or not straight or not white, it's you're on the edge a little bit. And so we need to get more people that are not majority culture to be able to be heard. And whether that's the president of the academy, president of very specialty societies, um, chairman of departments, that's going to make a big difference in the culture right there. Chairman of departments, right? The, the specialty societies are something that people choose or not choose to get involved with, and they can be visible roles. But the Im impression of the people that are going into the field is the department chairs. And in the departments themselves, leaders in academic departments where every single orthopedic surgeon has to travel through to get to the field. What are they learning there about culture? What is being prioritized when they train? Uh, what are we teaching our young men and women in the field uh, on how to work together and what's appropriate and what's not? And what are microaggressions and what's professionalism? That's where it has to start. I like seeing the fact that we are getting more diverse. And I think that's going to make a difference because that's where the training starts. So true. I'm very fortunate to be at one of those institutions that has a phenomenal female chair with Dr. Lisa Latanz and, and her what she's done in literally the year that she's been here is quite incredible. And especially I felt so bad because she comes in, has these plans and then COVID happens. And then she literally, and then what was great is she actually like took a leadership role and was responsible for securing PPE for our entire hospital. So it was really kind of great to see her shine in that moment. And, and it's not, you know, it's not just the chairs and the yeah, big fan of Lisa. Um, it's not just the chairs, but it's, you know, it's, it's, empowering people, women, people of color, and their allies to be able to speak up on the ground when there are microaggressions that occur. And, you know, because culture change, you know, there's removing structural barriers, structural barriers to, you know, promotion, to having families when you're training or beyond. Um, but it's also uh, these one-on-one -on -one interactions and how do we educate again, maybe not from a place of anger, but how do we provide a teaching moment where somebody goes, ah, oh, geez, I wasn't even thinking about that. You know, you're right. My, I, I can't imagine if someone said that to my sister, you know, or, or whomever, but um, I think we've got to be able to empower people on the ground. And that comes again, leadership starts at the top. So you've got Lisa Latanza. I'm sure she's setting a culture where speaking up is really important in that realm. So now that it's, you know, you are the past president currently, and you're able to kind of look back on the kind of that presidential year, what does it mean to you that you were the first female president of the Academy? Well, it was, it's a highlight. It's a, one of the highlights of my, my career. And it wasn't something that I aspired to, um, you know, people have asked, well, you know, did you know that from early on? Of course not. I, um, I worked in the organization for many years, tried to do a really good job. Uh, and the timing just, it, it seemed like it needed to happen, whether it was me or whether it was somebody else, it needed to happen. We were at a time where we needed to have a, a woman president of the Academy. And so I think that the work that I had done put me in a position of qualified, qualified uh, to do it. Um, 
and I'm thrilled to have that opportunity. I do think there were many women before me that would have been outstanding and the timing just wasn't right. So again, I, I hope to think that I, I was leading for everyone uh, in the field. And, you know, the job isn't done for me in, until there's another woman in the role um, and other people that are qualified uh, to lead, um, removing the barriers for them so that everybody's got an equal playing field to be able to, to have that opportunity. What in your mind were some of the highlights of your time as the president of the Academy? Yeah, I think working with the board, it was a really, really fun experience for me, actually. It's, uh, I've been on a number of boards, but the Academy board's different. And the organization you know, has a massive budget and has a great reach and breadth of programming. Um, it's very different than any other orthopedic organization out there. And again, as I talked about with the execution of the strategic plan, just the staff is really tuned in. It's very professional very high level. And so getting to set agendas and try to move, you know, as the leader, move our board from A to B on a number of really important issues for the field over the course of the year was really, I thought it was a, it was both challenging, but it was exciting. Um, you know, I, I, I would say one of my favorite times on the board was at the beginning of the year, we have a workshop. So that's how our board year starts. And so um, the workshop that I had was in Santa Fe, New Mexico, and um, the board hadn't met yet as a board, and there's a turnover every year. It's about a third of the board turns over, so it's kind of a new group every year, and I took a risk, and I decided that I wanted to invite an expert on something called the Enneagram. I don't know if you know anything about the Enneagram. It's a, it's a whole concept around personality. There's lots of these out there, but the Enneagram has been something I've studied for five or six years. It's been transformative for my personal and professional life. And I brought a woman who works with prisoners at San Quentin Prison in California, who's an expert in the Enneagram, to come and spend a half day with the board. Everybody had done their pre-work to identify their type. And she, you know, we got rid of the phones. We put our feet on the floor. We had nothing in front of us and we got really vulnerable. And it was a real thrill for me to see everybody really engage um, and to sort of dig deep a little bit about how we are, why we are, how do we work together? What, you know, what are our preferences? And it allowed me as the leader of the board to understand who I'd be working with for the next year. Uh, but it also set a tone. Um, and then we went out and, you know, we did work for the, for the Academy over the next several days, but with a different framework. And I brought her back every board meeting for the rest of the year to give a one hour sort of a, so we could, we could continue that work that we had done with her. Um, so it's good. It was a little bit of a different start to the year, I would say. I think I've, I've done that previously where I'm, you know, it's like INFJ or whatever it was. And I, that seems like so much more of an actual great use of that personality test. Cause I, I only think that I used it to like look online and figure out what like movie care. Like, I think I was Obi-Wan Kenobi was what INFJ was. That's the only thing I remember. So it's great. Yeah, I think you're, you're talking about the Myers-Briggs uh, yes. test. And that's a, that's certainly one that many people know. I would, um, I would uh, encourage you or anybody listening to this to look up the Enneagram, begins with an E. Uh, it is a much older um, uh, personality profile and it, it, it gets much deeper into why, uh, not just what are you, but why are you and what is your path um, to becoming a little bit more healthy in that type. There's nine different types. So it's a fascinating look and it's super nuanced. Um, really, really great. I know that we sort of talked about some of the challenges you knew you would face in that the academy is a something that has been done, you know, very traditional in the way that it's done. It does the things that it's always done, so to speak. What were some of the other challenges and adversities that were surprising to you during your tenure? I I think really the the main issue, the challenge for me was the resistance to change. And so really trying to trying to move past that and trying to really understand what the imperative, what the, what the case for change really was uh, and being able to try to formulate that to the board um, so that we could move forward in some areas where we just, we were too stuck in this is the way we've always done it. But to be able to challenge to say, why have we always done it that way? And where are we gonna, we're gonna end up if we continue to do things in that fashion? Um, you know, one of the 
the biggest challenges I think facing the academy today is something called governance. And along with the strategic plan, governance is incredibly important. It's how, how the organization is run. It gets into all sorts of tradition and culture about who's on the board, how do you pick the leaders, how long do they get to stay on the board, how do we make decisions, who's empowered. Um, those get into some moving of cheeses and, and people get very nervous about that. Um, and so uh, David Halsey, who was the president before me, really worked on the governance piece and came up with a bunch of principles. And, and I tried to move that on a little bit more. And again, this consistent path to setting something in motion and expecting every president over the next number of years to continue to move the important things forward. Um, hopefully we're going to get there with some of these difficult challenges we have uh, with organizational leadership. How do you convince those that a change should be made? Like what, what were the strat? Do you find like all these papers and bid like, look, this is what the research has shown or like, how did you even prepare your argument, so to speak, or your, you know, what you were going to say when you were trying to inspire people to think that change was something that should indeed happen? Right. I think it's multi, multi-pronged. And, you know, as the leader, you can only do so much. You really do have to, people have to, to have a compelling reason to change. You've got to be able, there's the, there's the um, intellectual part. I, that's where I gravitate to. Here's the logic. This is why we should do it. There's five different reasons here, but that doesn't get to the passion, right? There's a book called Switch um, that I gave the board. Uh, I gave the board a book, every board meeting, every member of the board. And the Switch um, is Chip and Dan Heath. And it talks about the writer and the elephant. And the writer's that logic and the elephant is the passion. So you may have all the ideas in the world about why we should change, but if you can't tap into that deep sort of emotional culture piece to get people to actually wanna change, you're not gonna get there by just telling them what all the reasons intellectually that they should want to do so. Um, and so really, I, to, knowing that we had to move toward change, I actually gave out a book uh, at every board meeting, some of which were focused on change. I brought in the speaker that I mentioned for um, the Enneagram and one meeting when we had a big change issue to talk about, she spent her hour at the beginning of the board meeting talking about each person and their type and how their type traditionally reacts to change. And then asking each board member to talk about how they react to change. So getting it out in the open so we all understood sort of where we are with change. Some people more reticent, some people more interested and, you know, getting that on the table and then moving into the conversation where we actually needed to change, it set a framework to allow us to have a better conversation about that. Um, you know, but I also think that data is important, you know, if we do not change, you know, what do our young people think, you know, getting input, what do people think about this in the academy? We may think as a board, people always want this, that may not be what they want. So until we can get input, from the resident assembly, from young members in, in all different practice environments, we don't really know. What would you tell the next female president of the Academy? You go girl, that's what I would say. I mean, I, you know, I, you know, I think the bottom line is you gotta have some thick skin, right? You, you are, it doesn't matter if you're a woman or a man, being the president of the Academy, you're gonna get people that say, I don't like what you're doing. You know, and they may say it in various flavors of that that are not very nice. And so <laughs> you have to have some conviction uh, again. And that's where that whole strategic plan, the process, we have a plan. We're moving in this direction. It is not my plan. I did not pick this, but I support what we've decided. And I think, you know, as a woman, there, there may or may not be a little more flack if there's people that, you know, maybe weren't excited to have a woman president to begin with. But um, you just got to be you got to know that you were picked because you deserve to be there. Um, I didn't have any imposter syndrome on this role. You know, I, I did the work, um, a good leader, and um, I was glad to be in the role. And I think I moved the organization to a better place. Um, so I would just, yeah, I would say you go girl, do it. Well said. Uh, I know Dr. Weber, we've spoken a lot about what you've done in the academy um, and kind of, you know, where you've been in your past, but I would love to hear what your future goals are, both clinically and research and just your work with various organizations. Uh, TBD, um, uh, COVID's uh, given me an opportunity to, you know, just sort of reflect and take a little bit of a break. 
um, after a busy year uh, with the academy. Um, I'm hiring, uh, I have hired a new uh, partner in Orthopedic Oncology to join me here at Penn, uh, Cara Cipriano. So really excited about her coming in. I know, she, you know, really I'm at a point in my career that I just want to support other people. So I want to support other people in their career choices, uh, whether it's Cara and wherever she wants to, to go or um, folks that want to lead national organizations or lead departments, whatever I can do to be helpful. Um, I've kind of checked off the boxes on my list um, and so it's really a supportive role that I want to play, um, whether that's supporting other people in their research, um, you know, anything that I'm interested in, sure, I'll jump in. I'm, I'm really interested in culture, gender diversity, things like that. Um, so that's probably where I would put my time over the next uh, decade. Nice. And Dr. Weber, I would love to move on to our final segment, which is the final five, which are the same five questions I ask every guest on the She Can Fix It podcast. And so my first final five question for you is what is your favorite procedure to perform and why? Oh, I love the distal femoral resection for a sarcoma and reconstruction with a mega prosthesis. That's a, just a, it's just a solid orthopedic oncology case. It's good anatomy. Um, just great to be able to take someone who has a cancer, hopefully localized and remove it and then get them walking immediately back to their lives. Um, doesn't get better than that. Um, I love megas. They're just the best. Um, what are your favorite go-to topics for grand rounds presentations or invited speaking engagements? I'm a tumor surgeon and I've done that a lot more than I've done this recent uh, work with the Academy. So my, you know, I talk about bone and soft tissue, sarcomas, uh, latest techniques, um, future directions. Uh, I talk about metastatic disease because there's so many people out there that, that touch metastatic disease that are not just the orthopedic oncologists. Um, I've talked a lot in the last couple of years about diversity and culture. Uh, and now I'm starting to talk more about strategy and governance. I found it so interesting that you chose to, that not you chose to do research, but that you do research on metastatic disease because it's personally something that I find so daunting in this in the sense of like understanding the metastatic cascade and figuring that out. Whereas I feel like trying to understand a single disease process and it's beginning to end just seems so, so much more straightforward to me. So how did you even like wrap your mind around trying to understand the metastatic cascade, especially because it's such a heterogeneous population in terms of the number of tumors that cause metastases and, you know, where they metastasize and all those sorts of things. Yeah. I mean, back when I was working in Mets at MD Anderson and at Hopkins, I, you know, I, I tried to take something that other people weren't really working on. Um, so I picked a metastasis type um, of renal carcinoma that, that wasn't getting as much press, um, and, and again, it, a lot of it was just education for me and, and what is going on with the cascade and can we affect that? And, you know, being, becoming an expert in mouse modeling, um, you know, obviously the field's gone way beyond now uh, where, where we were working um, a decade or so ago. But, but um, I find that the understanding of the science is so critical, uh, at least in, in my area in orthopedic oncology. I don't want to just be the carpenter that, you know, takes apart and puts together people for mobility, that is noble and great work, but I want to have a better understanding of how we're going to eventually put us out, to, out of business. You know, what are the drugs are going to be and how are we going to, what parts of the cascade are we going to knock out, whether it's, you know, whether it's a primary tumor work or, or, you know, how do we slow down the metastasis to other sites so that people can live longer? I mean, that's, that's the game changer. What is your favorite story slash memory as an orthopedic surgeon? That would be tough to narrow down, but I, if you're asking me about orthopedic surgery in general, it's always about the patient. So, I mean, there's so many different patients that I can think of, and primarily they're the children. Those are the ones I gravitate to most. So if I had to think of a memory that incorporates all of that, I would say when I was at MD Anderson Cancer Center, there was a pediatric oncologist named Norman Jaffe. Um, he treated the Kennedy boy, actually, with osteosarcoma. He organized over many years a trip to Park City, Utah to take the kids with amputation skiing. And so I went on that trip for two or three years um, and lots of my patients were there missing arms or legs um, and watching them be able to get back out on the slope to work with the you know, experts in Park City uh, was just, it was, I, I can't even describe how amazing it was to, to be part of that and to be with them 
um, as they could see that they could be more than what they thought after the amputation. What are your favorite activities outside of the operating room and outside of medicine? Oh, I like to be outside. Um, I feel very cooped in after this uh, COVID year. Uh, I like to be um, out in the West. I like to find wilderness areas where there aren't very many other people uh, and either be uh, alone or with friends. Um, specifically, South Southeast Utah in the canyons. I like Alaska uh, up, uh, up north of the Brooks Range, um, Colorado, um, whether it's whitewater rafting or, you know, climbing or hiking, any, skiing, anything. Um, Dr. Weber, my final question for you is what advice do you have for orthopedic surgeons and orthopedic surgeons in training? Yeah, there's only one thing that I say to everybody, and that is to work incredibly hard. We're in a field that it's just, it's not an eight to five job. It doesn't matter if you want to be academic or write papers or this or that, no matter if you're in private practice, it's, it's a, it's a, it requires a lot of work, uh, a lot of work to be able to get the requisite skills to be excellent. And then just a lot of work taking care of the patients, um, you know, doing the surgeries. If you're going to write, or if you're going to, you know, push the boundaries of, of leadership roles, you have to be willing to work hard and, you know, being excellent in everything, whether it's your surgical skills or your professional interactions. Just wanna always try to maintain a really high bar. Awesome. Dr. Weber, thank you so, so much for taking the time to speak with me today. I very much enjoyed our conversation and I wanna thank you for doing such a phenomenal job, um, just literally in general, but also as your uh, tenure as president. And I really wish you the best of luck with everything that you're doing. I appreciate the opportunity to talk to you. This was super fun. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode of the She Can Fix It podcast with Dr. Christy Weber. Please subscribe to our podcast to show your support. Another way you can provide support and keep this podcast up and running is to donate. You can visit our website, at shecanfixitpod.com and visit our donation page. I want to take this time to thank my lead editor and co-producer, Andrea Munger, without whom this podcast would not be possible. Thank you so much for listening and please stay safe. Stay safe.